Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Your decision in pharmacy has a lasting impact. The daily decisions of people in our industry influence patients, affect families, and change our environment. That's why I want to tell you about AltiGuard SafePack, a product from Altimed that makes choosing which pen needle to dispense an easy decision. AltiGuard SafePack pen needles are an FDA-cleared product that provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container, all in one convenient package system. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you protect families and your community from Sharps injuries and you remove medical waste from the environment. To learn more, visit altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. That's altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you choose positive change. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Particularly concerning our erroneous statements, such as the nation no longer has a prescription opioid-driven epidemic. Chronic pain generally is defined as pain lasting three or more months or beyond the time of normal tissue healing, as described in the 2011 Institute of Medicine, the IOM report, revealing pain in America. Pain is a significant public health problem. Although estimates of the number of people living with chronic pain in the United States vary widely in population level surveys, using self-reported data from the study, National Health Interview Survey Functioning and Disability Supplement estimates that the time of the survey, 11.2% of the adults in the United States population, 25.3 million, were experiencing daily chronic pain pain every day for the last three months of their lives. This is incredible, and it's also very disheartening. My name is Todd Yuri. I'm the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and we're diving back into pharmacists and physicians collaborating for opioid usage and the proper usage of opioids for pain management and also being very sensitive to the addiction issue that we have in the United States. With me today is uh, very exciting to say, Dr. William Amarque. He is a clinical pharmacist in Brandon, Florida, and, uh, and has really focused on pain and explores pain in his own side research that he's done. And I'm ex- excited to welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thanks, William, for coming back. No problem. Thanks to um, be back. So let's dive in. So we know that there are pharmacists out there, physicians out there who are on different sides of the line between what I would consider good collaboration, the name of patient care. And much of that comes from strong opinions backed up by um, research and other things that are coming out of the difference between pain management and opioid usage disorder and the thin line between those two. Something that I've really enjoyed connecting with you on social media, reading some of your writings and uh, things that you've uh, posted even on on LinkedIn is the fact that you see this in the hospital system that you work in every day. And I wanted to first give you an opportunity to give the listeners an opening statement about that balance between opioid usage disorder and pain management and the role of the pharmacist. Thank you for having me uh, back on. 
So, um, so my name is Dr. Amarque, and um, I'm a clinical pharmacist. I practice in the hospital setting. And I got interested in um, pain management um, during my uh, fourth year rotations. One of my uh, rotations was in a hospital and it was kind of geared towards uh, pain management. So we got to assess patients' pain. Um, we got to uh, make uh, drug recommendations with my preceptor. And I just really um, enjoyed uh, doing that. And I actually, during my rotations, um, got introduced to a pain management pharmacist uh, by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Feuden. Um, I got introduced to his blogs and um, I just loved the way he wrote. I loved the way he um, discussed about pain management. He was really um, you know, passionate about it. And then it was through his work, I also got introduced to um, understanding the nuances of the opioid crisis. And I think that his, his uh, work really um, shaped how I really got to understand this issue. And um, it is a, a really big issue. I think the previous administration back in 2017 declared um, the opioid crisis as a, a health, a public health emergency. So it is a, a really big issue that we're dealing with at the moment. And um, as a pharmacist that practices in um, the hospital, um, it's definitely important. And in the hospital setting, what they've done in regards to uh, kind of addressing um, the opioid crisis and overdose death and and uh, those who have you know opioid use disorder is what we call um, opioid stewardship program. So it's kind of a play off of um, antimicro antimicrobial uh, stewardship programs that they have in hospitals. So opioid stewardship programs um, is is important and it represents a model for um, hospitals to promote safe and rational prescribing of opioids and also to mitigate uh, preventable um, adverse events as well. And it, it is an important um, aspect, especially in the hospitals, because, you know, the Joint um, Commission has actually made um, opioid stewardship a part of their pain standards. So it, it is important um, in the hospital setting. And some of the things that um, are involved in opioid stewardship in the hospital um, is regards to looking at multimodal therapy, so looking at, you know, non-opioids and um, doing proper pain assessment, um, pain education, and then also in regards to those who have OUD, you know, proper screening, um, uh, referral treatments, um, you know, expanding access, um, also with naloxone access, um, expanding access to medications for OUD, um, continuity of care at discharge. Um, so all these different things, you know, we're, we're looking at in the hospital, and it's really to make sure that we take care of our patients and make make sure that they um, we, we have a balance of you know proper pain management making sure that the patient's pain is, is properly treated but also mitigating you know certain um, adverse events that can happen um, as you know especially with the opioid crisis diversion you know is um, one aspect uh, to the issue um, and that can happen especially when you know you get prescribed pills at discharged and they're not safely and properly stored at home and it can be diverted. So those are, you know, some of the things that, you know, were, uh, is involved in an opioid uh, stewardship program. And I think there was one study that showed that I think about over 20% of hospitals have like an established um, OSP program. Uh, my hospital um, doesn't have one at the moment, 
but um, it's something that is um, is growing and uh, hospitals are, you know, trying to implement. So I, I know that in this network uh, through Dr. Becky Winslow and Dr. Uh, Banaz Sarami, we focus on uh, pharmacogenomics. We focus on how uh, medications affect you differently than affects me based on our DNA. So when I know we have that technology, I can't help but to jump into this. And I think we should do a separate episode based on opioid dependency and, and drug abuse and pain management and PGX and how that could all, all come together. But while people are taking opioids for longer periods of time, many of them do not develop any type of compulsive patterns or of misuse, meaning they don't get addicted. Doesn't that tell us as scientists, as pharmacists, as physicians, that certain people will react to opioids being used as pain management different than others? It's not like you're saying right out of the gate, if you use opioids for an extended period of time to manage pain in, in you know, a multitude of different usages per se, you're going to become addicted. And that's not true. So what can we do as a baseline, do you think, in using technology like that to assure a treatment using opioids is a good route to take based on if that patient is going to become addicted or not? That's a good question. And, and I think um, in, in regards to that, there's, there's different camps in regards to actually how addiction happens, right? So you have those who, who take more of a, um, you know, it's in the genes and, you know, the brain addiction model of addiction, uh, of addiction, brain disease model of addiction, then you have others who, who take a different approach. So I, I think that you, utilizing technology like that as, as far as pharmacogenomics could be an interesting route. Um, but I think also we have to understand that there are nuances in, 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 in regarding addiction and how addiction happens. And as you mentioned, you know, before, um, one, one of the, the issues is that with addiction, a lot of people say that, you know, simple drug exposure is the most, you know, salient cause of addiction. And you have other, you know, experts, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like Dr. Carl Hart and other um, people, but they they kind of approach addiction more as a holistic approach and not just from, you know, simple drug uh, exposure. So I think that it's important to understand that there are different nuances when it comes to addiction and, you know, using uh, pharmacogenomics, especially in, in, in the pharmacist realm, that's something that I... Um, uh, was taught in, in pharmacy school. And that was actually one of our pillars in, in my pharmacy program. So I, I think pharmacogenomics could um, definitely play a role um, in regards to understanding because everyone has different genetics and we, we metabolize things differently. And um, you have, you know, ultra rapid metabolizers and, and things of that nature that could affect, you know, how you respond to opioids. And in regards to addiction, that that's something that, you know, Obviously, they're still studying and, and they're still trying to, you know, understand that whole pathway. So it, it definitely can be a um, an interesting thing that um, that they continue to study, you know, for the future. Yeah, there's a writing from the American Addiction Centers by Scott Thomas, um, medical doctor. And 
one of the um, excerpts from this article, which will also be in the show notes, says that the reason why opioids can lead to a substance use disorder is related to their chemical structure and the resulting impact that opioids have on the brain. Given the molecular structure, opioid drugs are able to bind to an active specialized protein throughout the body known as opioid receptors, many of which are found in the brain. These receptors are activated, a person's perception of pain is modified. So going back to what you just said and what we understand based on the technology to the assessment, we know that there are different kinds of addiction. There's a, a chemical, a biological change in the brain that is an addiction, but there's also, like me, um, caffeine. I don't feel as well in the morning. I get up around 6.30, I think I have my first cup of coffee around 7.30 and everything, you know, goes great. I don't, I feel different if I make it to 10, 11, 12. And then of course I'm drinking water throughout the day, but I do feel different without that caffeine. So I know something is happening in me chemically based on caffeine intake. And I know that's much different than an opioid, obviously, but what do you, Where's this balance where we are shunning and shaming and making patients feel bad about what they're going through and then being able to really drill down into excuses that people are making that truly are addicted and the difference between those two camps of patients? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. And that's, you know, something that is trying to be, you know, figured out now. I mean, I think you were talking about it in your first uh, series in regards to, you know, these two different groups. You have those who, you know, have OUD versus those who, um, you know, have actual chronic pain. And I think that, you know, it's important to, to make sure that we understand that there are patients who have pain and then there are patients who struggle with, you know, or who have, you know, opioid use disorder. And, I think that, especially, you know, working in the hospital, I, I deal with patients who, you know, who, who have uh, opioid use disorder. And then I also, I, I deal with patients who, um, who have pain, like who have acute pain and then also people who have chronic pain, but get flare-ups and have to come to the hospital. So I think that, you know, understanding that there are different populations and it, it's, and those different populations are going to dictate different treatment. You know, when, when a, for example, a sickle cell patient comes in for, you know, acute pain, you know, we're, we're going to treat them as soon as possible and, and making sure they're comfortable, making sure their pain is treated, making sure, um, you know, the proper assessment is done. And then when someone come, when someone comes in with, you know, you know, opioid use um, disorder, who has a history of that, um, we're going to be taking care of them uh, differently as well. And they're, we're going to be doing, you know, proper treatment and making sure that they're, um, they're treated as well. So I think that we have to, we have to understand that the, there are nuances and there are different populations who deserve, you know, humane and proper treatment. It's not going to be the same for both pain patients or it's going to be the same for both um, patients with, you know, opioid use disorder. And even within pain and OUD, there's going to be differences as well. So we have, we have to understand that um, we have to treat the patient and we have to understand what exactly is going on um, with the patient as well. I like when you're bringing up a specific condition, a specific chronic condition, um, sickle cell 
for example, where the patient is in pain or, or in, mm-hmm. sure it's on different levels. Do you think we need to be specific based on the findings for a specific chronic case and take those out of the standard wide swath of paint that tries to paint over everybody the exact same way, which I think is, is, you know, ludicrous. I think it it's, it's not good treatment when you try to take one big, you know, paintbrush and, and, and brush everybody the same. It would be, it would be great to see specialty disease states removed from this bucket so that we can immediately treat them from protocols right from the beginning differently, knowing that the disease state that they're, that they're suffering with includes a lot of uh, pain that, that gets in, you know, get, that's part of what that patient is experiencing. So what other disease states? We know that there's cancers that are painful, sickle cell is painful. What other disease states, um, William, would you remove from that wide swath um, to really drill down into what the patient was experiencing? Man, that, that's, that's a good question. I mean, there, there's so many, and, and, and that's why it goes back to, to understanding, like there, there's so many different pain conditions. I mean, you have, you know, uh, uh, people coming with, you know, pancreatitis. I mean, that, that's very painful. Um, I mean, there, there are guidelines regarding that. And it, there's just so many different, um, you know, pain conditions that people have. And I'm a big proponent of, you know, medication management and treating, you know, particular conditions. And I think that, like you said before, making broad brush, uh, broad brush uh, strokes against pain in general kind of dismisses the nuances that people have with specific um, pain. And I think that um, there are guidelines that um, discuss, you know, different pain conditions, as I mentioned, pancreatitis earlier. And, you know, now that you mentioned it, there was actually a, um, a workshop by the NIH that happened just recently in regards to sickle cell. And a lot of the experts were saying that, look, we need to understand and we need to treat sickle cell as, as its own thing, right? So I think um, just understanding that different pain conditions um, require um, different things and, and, you know, the patients who are, you know, suffering with that pain condition deserve to um, be treated with, you know, the utmost dignity and the utmost, um, you know, respect when it comes to their particular condition. So I, I think that, and, and as we'll talk about later, a lot of these um, policies and initiatives um, in regards to certain fields and stuff, I think kind of, you know, dismisses that factor. So we agree that you can't put patients all into one bucket with CDC specific guidelines and managing pain and the cross um, over that line into opioid usage disorder. Where is the agreement, where can we start? Where's the baseline? Where's the common denominator with physicians? Should we go back to square one and say, every patient right from the get-go, regardless of their situation, needs to be assessed for, you know, for pain, how they're, how they're, how that pain is coming on, the level of pain, and then making decisions on treatment. And based on the sensitivity of our country and the opioid epidemic, do we start out trying something other than an opioid 
unless it's one of these specialty disease states, including sickle cell, for example. Like, what do you what do you think a baseline or a common denominator common denominator could be? I, I think I think a common denominator could be proper education, right? Because I mean, g- going back to sickle cell, w- when it comes to the guidelines for sickle cell, when when a patient comes into the ED a lot of providers are not aware that you're supposed to treat the pain, you know, within the hour. A lot of people are not educated on the fact that there are guidelines out there that set specific standards, not only in the ma- in, in the time that you're, you're treating a sickle cell patient, but the drugs that are being used. So opioids are actually standard of care in our, in our, you're supposed to use that, you know, when the patient comes in, right? So I, I think that a common denominator can be education Education is a very powerful tool. And if, if someone doesn't know about something, you, you educate them about it and you tell them about it. So I think that, you know, education really can be a common denominator in, in, in these different pain conditions and understanding what we need to really be doing in regards to assessment and, and in regards to, you know, treating um, the patient. But it, it, it's always going to be hard because we, we all have our, you know, different understandings and our um, and our viewpoints in, in regards to the opioid crisis. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, a common denominator can be, uh, at least we need to be educated on, on what we need to do and, and what needs to happen, especially with different um, pain conditions. So do we make a bucket for everyone that isn't facing a specific, um, you know, debilitating uh, condition? for example, sickle cell, to bring that back, and then try a non-opioid pain medication for others as we track how much pain is being relief, relieved on a scale from one to 10. And that's subjective because my pain at number five might be your pain at number seven, might be someone else's pain at number two. So it's, it's, it's all different. But I know that there are non-steroidal anti, anti-inflammatory um, medications like ibuprofen and and um, and Aleve and acetaminophen and another steroid that I can't say that sounds like glucocorticoid. <laughs> How do you say that, pharmacist? Glucocorticoids. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> sounds so much better when you say it, William. And then beta blockers and anti. Uh, con- There's another one. Anti. Con <laughs> well, <since. laughs> well, that's right. But what do you think? Do you think that there is in moving forward with an initial treatment for people that are outside of those specialty issues or those conditions? What do you think of starting off and in, in trying to right stay away from the opioids? Right. So I, I think that already exists, and and we, we already have, um, and and that's the thing about making blanket guidelines. I've always stated, and I state this on social media as well, like we already have guidelines for specific disease states. And it's about educating about, um, you know, these guidelines and that they do exist and they that and that, you know, they talk about what to do in, in managing pain. And we already have, you know, stepwise therapy. So it's not always we go to an opioid first, like we try non-opioid um and says Tylenols and, and stuff like that before we get to the next step, right? If, if you're assessing pain and it's, it, it's these, you know, agents are not working, then you move up to um, the next step. So we, we already have um, protocols like this already established. And th- this is something that we, 
that is standard of care and that it, it's supposed to be done, right? You start with non-opioids and then you move up when when the pain is, is uh, when you do the assessment, the patient's still in pain. Um, so th these are already established, right? So the, 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 what we need to do is make sure that we are properly, um, that we're properly, um, you know, doing these established guidelines already, right? So um, I, I think that's the most important thing, making sure that we are utilizing our evidence-based, um, you know, standards and guidelines for, you know, treating pain. So I talked with Dr. Bernadette Melnick, uh, who is the chief wellness officer, and she heads the um, Ohio State University nursing program. And she helped to author a book called Implementing EBP, which is known as Evidence-Based Practice. And her argument in summarizing that book, which is one of my most favorite books as we prepare to develop more podcast content that follows EBP, in my case, evidence-based podcasting instead of practice. <laughs> um, but going back to what she says, she makes a statement that many nurses, many doctors, many pharmacists fall into treatment because of the way that other people have done it all along and or habit and or that's just the way that it is and never going back to the proof of what evidence-based practice has developed in uh, journal articles, peer-reviewed uh, processes, um, things that have been proven based on an evidence-based study. So when I think of the argument between organizations, physicians, pharmacists, pain specialists, organizations like PROP, I want to draw back to EBP, evidence-based practice, and say, but what does the evidence say about this? And you could fill in the blank. You could say, what does it say about weaning or titration off of opioids uh, to get somebody to become um, you know, opioid-free? Or what does it say about sickle cell pain management? Or what does it say? And of course, this is a lot of studies, a lot of reading, a lot of research. Right. Shouldn't we, and when I say we, I mean the health healthcare professional overall, shouldn't we resort back to EBP? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. I mean, that's, as a healthcare professional, you know, I, I have to make recommendations. I have to, all this, all these things have to be based off of what does the evidence say. And I think that it, it's hard sometimes because sometimes we don't have great evidence. So, you know, sometimes we have to go based off of what is available, our, our professional judgment and things of that nature. But yeah, evidence-based evidence, evidence -based medicine is, is really what we need to, um, to go by. And it's important for our practice and it's important for um, our patients as well. And I think that especially with, um, this talk of the opioid crisis and evidence and, you know, different organizations um, having different opinions like prop and, and other people. I think that uh, evidence is, is definitely important to uh, bring to the table and, and discuss. William, the federal register, the daily journal of the United States government put out a notice on um, July 22nd of 2020. And they said management of acute, and chronic pain, an opportunity for stakeholder engagement. The CDC, even though there are guidelines in place, and I know that uh, there are 
there are two aisles of, of belief in such guidelines and how those guidelines came about. But they've left things open, saying that the CDC is seeking additional input from pain patients, caretakers, healthcare professionals who will serve as stakeholders during the guideline development process. The agency is planning to speak with 100 stakeholders by phone or online for 40 to 60 minutes to listen to their personal perspectives and experience related to pain care. And the CDC has already obtained written comments from nearly 5,400 people, most of them pain patients. So th there is an application open and they're taking applications until August 21st. So I'm gonna post this, um, this link inside our show notes. If you are listening, if you are a pharmacist, if you are a physician, are amazing nurse practitioners, a nurse, it doesn't matter and you wanna participate, then get involved. And other, other pharmacists that are out there who are involved in pain management with their patients, start pushing other organizations to support your research. You know, reach out to our publication and see if there are ways to, um, to partner with other journals and or other sources of um, income, including uh, pharma manufacturers to do independent study and independent research that can become peer reviewed because there isn't enough out there in my opinion William to dig down into all of these um, specialty chronic conditions where pain management must um, be handled differently than than someone else who broke their leg and you know is is on opioids over a long extended period of time and versus someone who is suffering with cancer or sickle cell. So have you heard about this call from the uh, CDC asking for more input? Yeah, that's, um, that, that's, that's been a, a very uh, contentious uh, topic <laughs> in regards to the um, updating of the CDC guidelines. And there, there's been a lot of um, physicians and advocacy groups that have discussed kind of the the unintended um or some people say intended but <laughs> the unintended consequences of of the cdc guidelines and it, it, it's so important um as, as you mentioned there's a lot of pain patients who have who have commented because they they have been hurt by um, the cdc guidelines and in, in their estimation and i think that like i stated before having a guidelines that have blankets you know thresholds um, it's not always the best thing because it, it kind of dismisses um, you know individualized patient care so so the updating of the guidelines is going to be very very important um, hopefully in regards to kind of updating some of the recommendations that were put out um, when they first came out in 2016. And the this, the whole CDC guideline controversy is 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 a very big controversy. And um, as you had, you know, members of Prop and in, in the other series um, uh, discuss that. But um, I actually wanted to talk about just just quickly some of the things from uh, the previous episode, just to bring uh, a more balanced uh, discussion in regards to the opioid crisis. You have many different, you know viewpoints in regards to you know what is what exactly is happening and and things of that nature so in in the previous episode you know they you guys talked about collaboration you know between the physician and the pharmacist and that that is so important especially when we're talking about you know 
opioid medication class because it's it's important for to have that um, collaboration and to make sure that you know we are um, properly mitigating risk, but we're at, we're also properly managing pain as well. And it, it's interesting, um, Dr. Kalani had mentioned that uh, it would be good for pharmacists in the previous episode. It would be good for pharmacists to uh, counsel patients um, in regards to the mitigating um, the side effects with opioids and and how hydrocodone and oxycodone. If the patient understood that, you know, it was essentially heroin. And this is a statement that he's made before that hydrocodone and oxycodone are, you know, essentially heroin pills. I think uh, I, I was kind of taken aback by that comment. It, it's kind of interesting um, that he mentioned that. I think that as a pharmacist, when I counsel patients on on opioids, and I don't want to, you know, fear monger patients into into medications, um, saying that you know these medications are like heroin. Um, I think that when we talk about pharmacology, right? As a pharmacist, that's 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 one of our main areas is pharmacology. And whenever you have a medication um, class or a class of medications, um, you know, just because you have medications that may hit the same receptor, um, such as an opioid class, you have opioids that hit the mu receptor, doesn't necessarily mean that each of the meds in the same class are going to do the same thing, right? So you have different pharmacokinetic differences, you know, structural differences of, of the actual molecule. And, you know, heroin is actually much more lipophilic than, you know, hydrocodone or oxycodone. And it's, it's much different than, than those drugs. So I think that we have to be careful in kind of the hyperbolic language that we use in regards to these medications and make sure that we don't stigmatize um, these medications because, you know, people, you know, depend on these medications and people, um, you know, depend on them to have function um, every day. So I, I think it's important as pharmacists that we don't, um, you know, hyper exaggerate things. And, and we're honest with the patient about, you know, opioid risk and, and, and adverse events um, as well, but not to, you know, exaggerate um, these uh, drugs as well. And um, one last thing I'll state, I think there was another comment in the previous episode about um, how the United States, you know, uses more opioids um, than other countries. I think that um, it is true, yes, we do use more opioids, um, you know, after surgery um, than other countries. But I think it's also important to note that we have to talk about the disparities, right, when it comes to access to pain management. There's a lot of, you know, especially morphine, which is, you know, mostly used in the United States and Europe. A lot of other countries do not have access to, you know, basic pain medication that's on the WHO's, you know, essential list, such as morphine. And there's so many other countries that just don't have access to it. You look at India, you know, South America, Africa, who don't have access to medicate to pain medications post-op and um, who don't have access to medications in palliative care, which is so important. You have patients actively dying of cancer who can't get access to morphine. And I think, you know, the Human Rights Watch has done great work in regards to um, talking about the, the gross disparities we have globally in access to pain medication. So... I think that we, when, when it comes to talking about the opioid crisis and overdose death and addiction, and, and we, we, we really have to be nuanced in, um, in our discussions. And I feel like sometimes um, prop is not as nuanced as it should be, but um, you know, like I said, we, we all have different viewpoints when it comes to the opioid crisis. But at the end of the day, I think that we have to really be careful in our messaging and make sure that we don't stigmatize people who use these medications. So um, 
you know, which is which is very important. As as we mentioned earlier, you know, pain medication and pain management is so important in different um, pain conditions, right? Sickle cell, et cetera. So I think at the end of the day, we really have to make sure the um, it, it's it's all about a balance. It's it really is just making sure the patient is is proper has proper pain management, but also mitigating risk of opioids as well. Absolutely agreed. You know, there is a certificate program out from the American Society of Health System Pharmacists called the Pain Management Certificate. This was released in December, uh, late December of 2020. And it was, um, it's to expire and be updated uh, December 23rd, 2023. And um, it says that there are nine modules designed for participants to increase the knowledge and skills necessary to provide patient-centered pain management. The curriculum addresses basic principles associated with pain pathogenesis and assessment, effective pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatment options. Have you heard about the certificate program, uh, William? And um, have you have you taken any of these courses? And, and what do you think of, of these certifications? Yeah, I've, I've heard of those uh, certifications. I think um, the one you listed was ASHP and there's other... Um, organizations that have certificates as well. I think it's a great idea. I think that, um, you know, as pharmacists, we're, we're always learning, right? Learning doesn't stop after graduation. So I think that those certificates are, are great ways for people who want to, you know, someone like me who wants to, you know, who has an interest in pain management, um, you know, get into more of a, you know, specialized focus on, you know, your, topic of interest. So I think that um, that certificate is a really great idea. And I'm definitely going to be um, doing that ASHP uh, certificate. And there's also, you know, many other certificates on that website. You have anticoagulation, medication therapy management. So there's, there's many different topics um, on that website. I encourage people to go on there if you're, you know, interested or, or have a passion for, for, for anything in particular. There's a lot of great certificates on that, um, on that website. Yeah, we're going to be putting this certificate program in the show notes from the ASHP. Uh, once again, it's titled Pain Management Certificate. If you Google that, along with the um, term uh, or letters ASHP, it'll actually come right up. And these kinds of certificate programs really bring us into, which I won't go into this for today's interview because it's a whole it's a whole interview in and of itself, but. Therein lies the specialty opportunities in pharmacy. If you're a pharmacist and you are interested in pediatrics, if you're interested in a specialty disease state, if you're interested in technology or digital therapeutics or pain management, there is such a huge opportunity for a pharmacist to drill down into a specialty and become an expert in it. Just like when you've mentioned um, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Feudin, who is, is very well respected throughout um, you know, his circles of, of, of understanding what pain does to patients and how it alters other comorbidity situations where someone is dealing with a multitude of conditions and pain happens to be one of them. Now, when we start mixing in other conditions, William, I think there's a whole nother level of studies that must be done for those people that are experiencing that pain that are also experiencing some other type of, of chronic condition. Oh yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, as a pharmacist, we, whenever we take care of patients, we, we usually are not just taking care of a patient that has one, um, you know, condition. It's usually multiple conditions. So a, a lot of things overlap, 
Um, so it's definitely important to understand, you know, the different um, conditions that can overlap in a patient and, and how to properly um, treat it. So once again, we're going to continue to peel back the, the many different facets of pain management and, and opioid usage disorder and the balance between them. Um, I also want to encourage, if anyone's listening, if you are a patient, if you have a good relationship with your pharmacist, with your physician based on your own experience, uh, we'd very much like to start interviewing um, patients who have been very methodical about their treatment and what they go through um, through their pain, because I think that's an important part of this discussion. You know, we're on episode uh, three in this series, but we're going to extend this series um, as we did many of the other ones that have have blown up into you know 10, 12, uh, 20 part series because it's important to continue to push um, the collaboration between pharmacists and physicians in focusing on pain management as well as the opioid um, the opioid epidemic. William, I so much enjoy talking with you. Uh, you always bring uh, new information to the uh, to the conversation, um, the insights, the way that you are very empathetic, and the way that you are patient. I even see responses and and you know topics that you comment on on LinkedIn and and, and Twitter and Instagram, where you come at this as as putting your patient first and. And that um, needs to, to be supported by evidence-based practice. Um, but, but having your heart in it and having uh, empathy in this is so important because sometimes patients feel that they're just pushed aside based on this wide brush stroke of decisions being made and guidelines being designed that cannot fit everyone. It just absolutely can't. And it's, it's going to be different. So Thank you so much, William. And um, we, we'd like to hear um, some of your, your closing comments. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, have, having a family member who suffers with, with uh, intense pain really puts things in, in perspective. And, you know, being on the provider side and then being also on the other side um, where, you know, I've been with, you know, family members who, who have pain issues and can't get proper pain treatment. It, it really puts things in perspective, and and I think I I really go at it from that perspective. Like we have to be about the patient. We have to make sure that um, they're getting proper treatment, and we really have to you know put ourselves in their shoes. Like this patient, you know, is is, is suffering every single day, and we have to make sure that you know we we treat them individually. And you know, I, I always go back to you know, you know, evidence-based medicine and, and always go back to, you know, you know, my family member who, who suffers with, you know, um, intense pain. So it's, it, it's really about striking a balance for me. And, um, I'm really grateful that, um, to be on your platform to, to talk about this very important issue. So we have Dr. Joni Carroll, who's going to be leading a podcast series that's going to be titled Let's Talk Stigma. And it's going to be about treating patients that are suffering with opioid usage disorder and addiction and how people who are uh, stigmatized are not receiving the, the treatment that they need because they're being pushed into a corner of assumption. And assumption is not evidence-based practice. And, and I know 
there are medical professionals, clinicians, pharmacists, physicians out there listening right now who might take offense to that statement, especially coming from someone who doesn't have a medical uh, physician, MD, or PharmD degree. But as a patient, as a consumer, I think it's important to um, to stop the stigma, to to stop putting um, pain management patients or people that are suffering with pain to constantly um, put them in some kind of of corner uh, with an eye roll and and not respecting what they're going through and not being empathetic. I think that that's big. So we're we're really looking forward to the series coming from uh, Pitt uh, School of Pharmacy as well as the Pennsylvania Pharmacists association and we're so glad that they're uh, going to be pushing this out so william um definitely stay tuned for that series too yeah definitely we are um pleased and excited of how much feedback we've received on this series specifically to pharmacists and, and physicians collaborating on the opioid epidemic and, and also pain management if you're listening right now and you'd like to participate please uh, reach out to the uh, Pharmacy Podcast. We'd love to have you involved. Uh, Dr. William Amarque, you are a beacon of, of, uh, of empathy and of truth and of, of caring for patients. And we have um, great respect for you and thank you for participating today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you so much for having me on your show.